Good morning, brothers and sisters. So glad you could join us this morning. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 1 through 27 this morning. As we begin John chapter 18, John is moving us out of, obviously, the upper room, uh, which was chapters 13 through 17. We ended that this last uh, Sunday. And in John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is spending his final hours with his disciples at that Last Supper. And Jesus spends a great amount of time speaking to them about the, the fact that he's leaving them, that he loves them, that he's not going to abandon them, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and then he prays for them in John chapter 17. That's a very condensed version of all of that. We spent the last couple of months going in detail over those precious passages in John 13 through 17. I encourage you to go back and watch or listen to those um, and meditate upon uh, the teachings there. Read them for yourself also. Uh, but in John 18, there's a shift from the upper room to the garden. The upper room in Jerusalem, outside the city, to the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be betrayed and arrested. And so let's pick up in John chapter 18, verse 1, where... <clears throat> which says, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, that is after his prayer of chapter 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. It's been a little while since I've, I've mentioned it, uh, but Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, obviously, at the, at the feast of Passover. And we know from the gospel that Jesus and his disciples are visiting Jerusalem. As they are, they would often stay in the outskirts of the city. You remember that he often stayed with Lazarus and his sisters in Bethany, which was a half a day's journey, basically, away from Jerusalem. And they'd also camp in gardens and places around the city, as the city was often full, in places like Gethsemane. We know it's Gethsemane from other accounts in the, in the scriptures and the other gospels. And so, the Garden of Gethsemane is across the book of, brook of Kidron. And so as you go out the east gate in Jerusalem, you would go, you, there would be a, a little valley, um, a little valley there with the uh, brook Kidron. And then it would ascend again up into the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, off to the one side, is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And it, it's, the actual word Gethsemane means olive press, and obviously it's on the Mount of Olives. There were tons of olive trees, and if you go to Israel's day, um, there are olive trees still there. And so um, this is interesting as we look at why Gethsemane is called the olive press, because as Jesus spent this last night with his disciples in this garden, he was being crushed. Uh, John really doesn't uh, give us the account, but the other Gospels do, uh, in that Jesus was, this is where Jesus was experiencing um, great anguish in his soul as he was being, uh, he was pouring out his heart to his Father, Lord, let this cup pass, Father. If there's any other way, let it be so, and nevertheless, your will be done. As the Son knew the, what was coming to him, that he would become sin for those who would believe, that he would be experiencing the wrath of his Father um, on behalf of those, on behalf of us. And this just absolutely crushed him, the thought of not being in perfect fellowship, in perfect union with his Father. It crushed him, and he cried out. And as he was there crying out to his father, he sweat as though grape drops of blood being crushed like an olive. Um, and so they're in Gethsemane. 
after Jesus prays and his disciples could not stay awake, if you remember, Jesus called his disciples and said, hey, come away with me and pray. And then he took three of them, Peter, James, and John, and said, you guys, come with me and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Well, they kept falling asleep and Jesus kept praying. After that, we are, we are here in John chapter 18. And in verse two, it says that now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. He knew where Gethsemane was, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so if you remember, the Jews wouldn't do anything to Jesus in public out of fear of the Jews. They were feared. The, the city was divided. We've seen that over and over in the Gospel of John. And so they were looking for an opportune time. Um, they had already decided back in chapter 11 that they were going to kill Jesus. And now they were looking for an opportune time. They found the betrayer, Judas, and now they found the opportunity. It's night. It's under the cover of darkness. They're on the outskirts of the city. And Jesus is alone with his disciples. And so Judas, both with Roman troops and with the temple police there and some political leaders, came where Jesus was, and they came with lanterns and weapons. I want to I paint the picture because we think kind of maybe like five or six people kind of gathered together. Um, the word there for uh, a band of troops, these are Roman soldiers. Um, the, the word there is... Is, uh, is a cohort, which is basically anywhere between 600 and 1,000 troops. And because it was the fast, fa- uh, Passover feast, many think it's, it's nowhere near that amount, but rather just a, a small segment of that, probably around 200 soldiers, a detachment called the Maniple. And so there's quite a military presence, no matter how you slice it. And so they've all come out to arrest Jesus. Verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Church, you have to know that none of this is happening to Jesus by surprise. It says there in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he knew everything that was going to happen, and he had known Obviously, he had been telling his disciples for quite a while. And for the past several chapters, we know from chapter 13 on, Jesus had been telling his disciples that he was going to leave them. We know from Luke's account that he told him three times, three separate occasions, distinct moments that that this moment would come. And here in chapter 18, as the soldiers and the politicians are all gathered uh, around Jesus, Jesus, knowing what happened to him, said, who are you after? Who do you seek? In verse 5, they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Verse 6, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so when Jesus said, I am he, which which is ego me in Greek, which is the actual name of God. If you go into the Septuagint, it's the same name, I am that I am, that God gave Moses when Moses was speaking to, the, to God out of the burning bush. He said, who do you, who do you want me to tell the Hebrews that is, is sending me? And, and God said, tell them, I am that I am, ego me. And this is the same thing uh, that Jesus says here to all the soldiers, to all the chief priests, to the politicians who are there to gather, uh, to arrest him, to Judas. Who are you after? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says the name of God and they all fall down backwards. Just a tremendous display of his power and his splendor just in his word. It's quite quite astounding. What a lot of power that hundreds of men fell down, fell backwards. You know, it's just a little prelude. I was thinking of Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, which says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming soon when both the, every, every person who has, has existed or will exist will bow before the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as all these people are getting up and dusting themselves off, verse 7 says, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? <laughs> I love that. It's like, uh, now who are you after? And, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, and here's the key point, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost not one. What Jesus was doing with that show of force, church, what he was doing was he was letting them know who was actually in control. Jesus knew everything. And he was operating according to the Father's will. And it was the Father's will that none of these disciples would be harmed until it was their time. And it was not their time. It was his time. It was the Lord Jesus' time. As we already read in John 17, 12, when he was praying in this last chapter, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he said to the Father, while I was with them, that is the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so Jesus is still keeping guard over his disciples and only one is lost. That is Judas, uh, whom Jesus knew all along, according to John 6, 64, would betray him and he did not believe. Now, our dear brother Peter is there with our Lord and he's looking at just this display of force as they are coming out to get Jesus, Peter sees Jesus say, I am he, and he sees everybody fall back. And then they proceed to arrest Jesus. And verse 10 happens. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And he struck the high, high priest's servant uh, and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. <clears throat> and so Peter is thinking this is the time. This is the time to fight. It's, it's now. This is when the kingdom is going to be established. Let's do it. Now, we have to remember, although Jesus had told them, the disciples, over and over and over again what the plan was, that he would be betrayed, that he would be, put into, he would be brought before the elders and suffer cruelty and then you know, crucified and, and, and rise again, the disciples are still not getting it. They're expecting a military, um, basically a military takeover by the Messiah. That was, their, uh, that was their Old Testament understanding of what would happen. The Romans would be overthrown, the oppressors would be kicked off, and the Messiah would come and establish his physical kingdom on earth. <coughs> Excuse me. And 
Peter, just hours earlier in John 13, pledged that he would lay down his life for Jesus. If we read in John 13, 38, he says, uh, he says Lord, I'll, I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus replies in John 13, 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Matthew's account of this says that all the disciples agreed with Peter. They were all in agreement. Yeah, we'll, we'll lay down our lives for you. That's what we're all together in this. And you can see how much they love the Lord. They really did. And so they're coming for Jesus here in the garden. And Peter is ready to fight. He's ready to, he's ready to <laughs> install the kingdom by force. You know, he loved Jesus. He wasn't going to see him taken away. And so he pulls his sword. He hacks Malchus's right ear off. And uh, Luke's account tells us that Jesus picks it up and pops it back on there. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says here in verse 11, put, put your sword into its sheath. Shall not I drink the cup that the Father has given me? <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter thought he was doing the right thing. This is important. Peter thought he was doing the right thing. But in reality, he was getting in the way of God's plan. Peter was actually in, he was sinning. He was in total sin. And this was an ongoing problem with Peter, This was it, which culminated in this moment. This had been going on for quite a while. And we can see the, the beginning of this in, in, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 21 through 22. It speaks to the root issue here that Peter is dealing with. It says in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21, 22, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is telling them plainly the plan. This is what's going on, guys. This is what's going on, disciples. And then in the very next verse, verse 22, it says, and Peter took him aside. He takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You know, uh, Peter obviously loved the Lord. Um, and, and when Peter heard that he was going to be suffered, that he was going to die, it was just set in Peter's mind that no way am I going to let this happen. No way is this going to happen. Lord, this is not going to happen. And Peter was telling Jesus, no, you are not going to the cross, in effect. Peter didn't understand the full ramifications, obviously. You know, it seems like we could say, hey, his heart was in the right place. But Jesus says differently. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, in verse 23. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter's view of who Jesus was and what Jesus should do was a worldly perspective. It was a man-centered idea and perspective as opposed to a kingdom perspective, what God had for the Messiah. Peter was, he had his, we look at him and go, hey, you know, Peter had his heart in the right place. It's like, no, he didn't. He was in sin from that point onward where he thought he knew best of what God was going to do. Peter had good intentions, so to speak, but they were ultimately satanically influenced and they were sinful. 
And Jesus tells Peter that. He tells that Satan was influencing him and that he was a hindrance to what God had actually called him to do. How devastating is that? And it came to head here in the garden where Peter, although he was trying to protect Jesus, protect Jesus, was getting in the way of exactly what God had planned for his son to accomplish. Jesus told him what was going to happen all along, that Peter would not listen. He was not listening. He was earthly-minded in, in, in many things. And boy, I can just relate to Peter as God is has had to humble me in some ways and will still humble me in these ways. And I'm sure you can relate as, as well. Jesus told him what was going on. Jesus tells Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has prepared for me? You know, it, it would be really wise, as I was thinking about this, it'd be really wise for us to hear what the Spirit would say to the church during the season that we're in. I mean, look what's going on in our world in, with coronavirus and politics and the economy and submission to authorities and all these things. And I, I, you know, in my own heart, I've been wrestling with uh, just earthly mindedness um, rather than being focused on what the Word of God says in these scenarios. You know, the only opinion we really truly need to be concerned with is God's opinion because that's the right one. What does the Lord say uh, about His people and how they're to be and to act and re represent Him in these situations? What does the Lord say we're to do? Because ultimately, that's all that matters. And you know, we, we can take our swords out and we can start chopping off governor's ears and we can start chopping off one another's ears and we can, um, you know, and, and, and we can all say, you know, our hearts are in the right place and, you know, far be it from you, Lord. I mean, church, do you think God's not involved with what's going on? Do you think he doesn't know what's going on with everything that's going on in the world? Do you think he's not intimately involved in, in, in this? It would be he absolutely is, and, and it would be wise for me and, and for you, for us as a body, to put away our swords, to close our mouths, and to open the Word of God, and to gather together virtually or however we can, and, and pray for God's humility in our hearts, which I need, which you need, uh, for His will to be done in this time, in this season, through His church, which He bought through His Son, and uh, that He would be glorified during this pandemic, that instead of, um, you know, um, cutting down maybe how our government's doing things, uh, begin to pray for them and begin to um, and pray for them specifically and their families and all the things that are going on. Not saying that we have to agree with everything that's going on, but man, what does God say about this season that we're in? What does the Lord say? Are we like Peter who's just gung-ho and has his mind of what Christ should do and his church should be and it's not rooted in actual truth. So I just, I just think, church, we, we know that um, we have an opportunity here um, to, be a, a, a salt, to be salt and light to the world and to love one another. And let's put away our swords and let's you know, more get on our knees and, and seek God together in humility. And may he give us wisdom in this time. But it all came because Peter was under the influence of the enemy and he would not submit to God. And, and he had tons of opportunities to do that. Just a few moments before, right before all the troops pray, came, Jesus was praying. And we know from the other gospels that, that Peter and James and John, whom Jesus called to go pray 
uh, with him that they would not fall into temptation. They kept falling asleep. They were heavy with sorrow at the thought of Jesus going away. And so they were sleeping and they weren't ready when the moment came. And so I just, I feel this is totally, uh, you know, may, may, the, may the Spirit give us application for what's going on around us and may He speak to our hearts on this and may we listen. But for Peter, all his, for all his good intentions, church, um, he was worldly minded and he was, he was sinning horribly and he was actually going against God's plan of redemption in his ignorance. And Jesus said to Peter back in Matthew 16, you're a hindrance to me. And now in John 18, Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And the cup, meaning the cup of divine judgment. As Jesus was praying moments earlier, he was asking that this, if there be any other way that this cup would pass from him. Uh, not that he wasn't willing to do the Father's will. That wasn't it. He didn't want to be separated from the Father. Um, that's what overwhelmed his heart. But he said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Um, and I was thinking of, of a verse um, uh, back in John 18. Well, actually, it's... It's a different verse. It says, "In that for our sakes he has been made, he, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, and uh, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." I think that's First Corinthians five twenty one. But, but the the idea is that the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon the Son on our behalf, so that we could go free. This is the this is where Jesus was heading to redeem a people for himself, of whom you and I are the benefactors of this moment that he followed through with it. Peter was not mindful of the cross. Peter was sinning, and he was fixated on man's perspective. And we're going to see that play out um, to, to Peter's breaking here in just a few minutes. Um, in verse 12, it goes on, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Anas, uh, for, he was, uh, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had uh, advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so Jesus is first brought before Annas, um, who was the former high priest. Interesting thing about Annas is that he had five sons and one grandson that would become high priest. And so he's a very powerful, history tells us that he was a very powerful man. Um, he was uh, very influential and that he was a very greedy man. He was the one who um, was uh, kind of running the, uh, uh, the trade of the animals for sacrifices. He was the one who would impose the temple tax there at exorbitant rates, the exchange rates uh, for people being able to buy and sell animals in, in the temple. He was in charge of the money changers. He was a very powerful and yet greedy man, and he was at once high priest. And so he's brought before Annas first, and this will begin um, the religious trial of Jesus this night. And so we're in the late hours of the morning, um, early morning Friday, 
And basically what's going to happen is, is there's two trials that Jesus uh, is going to experience. One is a religious trial because he's going to be brought before the Jews, and then they can't really do anything to execute Jesus, so they're going to bring him to a, a, a civil trial. That will be for, before Pilate and Herod. And so what happens is Jesus is now brought before Annas, then he'll be brought before Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, and then he'll be brought before the whole Sanhedrin. And then the, the civil one is they'll be brought before Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate for the ultimate execution order. That's what's going to go on, although John doesn't spell all of it out. And so here he is before uh, Annas, and like we said, he's not good, and neither was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And the scriptures there in verse 14 said that he was the one who said it would be expedient um, that uh, one man should die for the people rather than t- for them to lose power. That was back, quoting back to John 11, um, where uh, they all decided as a religious leadership that they were going to seek to kill Jesus. It was already decided. And so he was set on murdering Jesus as well as his father-in-law. And so the religious trial begins, verse 15, and it's going to take us through uh, the next chapter and a half here. But verse 15 Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, we we know from the other Gospels that at the arrest of Jesus, all the disciples scattered, and apparently Peter and John, who are two peas in the pod, they, they regroup and they go and they fo- they're following Jesus, apparently John more closely than Peter. And this, un, I'm, saying this I'm saying John is the unnamed disciple here, but uh, the unnamed disciple is, is most likely John. Most people think it is John. Uh, John, in his writing this gospel, uses terms like the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never refers to himself, and now he's, he's saying an unnamed disciple, and most people believe that this is actually John. But apparently, uh, this disciple, um, whom, again, who most believe is John, uh, he knew the high priest in the household, uh, or, or someone in the household of the high priest. And some think this is because uh, of his father's fishing business, that they delivered fish there, so there's some ancient writings on that. Other people, um, you know, go to a, a, a letter written by uh, Poly, uh, Polycatrice, um, basically a second century uh, bishop of of Ephesus, where John actually is believed to have died. Uh, that's where he, he ended up living and dying. Um, but he, he said that John was possibly, he was a servant and a priest at one time in his life. And so it quite, could quite be that John had a uh, priestly lineage in, and he um, shared uh, in, in the priesthood at one time. Regardless, this unnamed disciple was known by those in the high priest court and, and uh, was, uh, was able to enter in while Jesus was uh, going through the gates and Peter was left outside the gates. And so this disciple spoke to the person at the gate, let Peter in. And Peter's inside the gate, but not before Sir 17 happens. And then the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And so, if you remember back at the end of John 13, in the, in the upper room, Jesus said to Peter that you would, he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. 
And we are at that moment. Peter denies that he knows Jesus. It's interesting in here, it, she says, you're also not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? Which, which kind of leads me to think that John was very open about being a disciple of Jesus, which wasn't a crime at the moment. Um, but Peter said here, and, and he denies the Lord for the first time, as just as Jesus knew that Peter would. And Peter thought this would never happen. You know, Peter was so gung-ho about Jesus. He was so gung-ho about following the Lord that, man, I'll lay down my life for you. How many of you said that? You just love the Lord, and you're like, Lord, I love you so much, and I'll do anything for you. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. You know, it, it seems that that's quite often our hearts. You know, we love the Lord, but then we find out that we don't love Him as much as we thought we did. And that's what Peter's going to go through here. And this denial goes all the way back to Peter having his mind on earthly things. You know, we've all been there. You know, one day, uh, like I said, we're, we're going home about Jesus. We love the Lord. We're, we'll say, Lord, I'll just bring me, you know, run me into people. Uh, bring me uh, circumstances in a circumstance where I can share who you are with people and Lord, help me get over that fear and then God presents that opportunity and, you know, to either share the gospel or to proclaim Christ or, or identify with Jesus in a, in a hostile situation and, and then we, we just kind of shut the door and we walk away and just like Peter, we deny the Lord and man, I think we can relate to this. We just collapse sometimes. And the Lord really knew this about Peter, although Peter didn't know it about himself. Uh, he knew that Peter would deny him. And he tells him when it would happen. He said, you, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And you've got you to understand, that's the furthest thing from Peter's mind at that, when he heard that. Like, no way, I'm going to die for you. And Jesus looked into his soul and knew that that was not the case. You're going to run. And so... In verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The other gospel accounts say that Peter is following Jesus at a distance and now he is warming himself at a distance from Jesus. And so there's now a proximity, there's a distance between he and the Lord now where there used to be this closeness. And so it's interesting one moment Peter pulls his sword and he's ready to defend and to die for Jesus and now he's falling further and further away and his, his heart is betraying him as he is sinning greatly against the Lord. And as Peter is looking on, we see the contrast here in verse 19. The high priest then questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And so Peter's in the outer courtyard looking in and now Jesus' trial is starting to take place. And Jesus answered and asked, and they're calling him the high priest here. It's kind of like, um, uh, it's kind of like our president. Once our president is president, our president, you always call him Mr. President. That's just a title they retain. And so, although he wasn't the acting high priest, and asked was still called the high priest. And so Jesus answers him, "I have spoken openly to the world." I have always taught in synagogues and in temples where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And so these are all really formalities. Annas isn't really 
he isn't really interested in the truth. They've already determined back in chapter 11, they're going to kill him. They're just bringing him through the legal uh, trials just to put the rubber stamp on it and move forward. And so they're just trying to get um, Jesus to perjure himself or to get in trouble, uh, to say something, to slip up here. And so instead of bringing the evidence and saying, hey, this is what you're accused of, he just starts questioning him about his teachings and his disciples. This isn't a trial. This is a sham hoping that Jesus would slip up. And Jesus responds and says, listen, nothing has been hidden from you. What I've said, I've said openly. And Jesus spoke publicly about the kingdom, about his father, about his relationship with the father, about the need to repent, about true salvation. He, 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 he spoke all these things publicly. And yet they didn't have ears to hear, obviously. And Jesus said, ask the people who are there, ask them, they're, they're, they're witnesses all around, look at them. And this is why as Jesus is, kind of pointing out these things to Annas. Annas's hypocrisy is totally showing. He's upset, no doubt, because Jesus is saying, listen, everything I've done is an open. I've got tons of witnesses. Look all around. Talk to them. But he didn't have any. And that's why as the night progresses, they're going to hire witnesses. They're going to bring up Uh, false charges against the Lord Jesus under those false witnesses so they can have their way. And as Annas is exposed and obviously probably a little perturbed, as Jesus says, why don't you ask everyone around? Verse 22, and when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? You know, um, just irony right there because Jesus is the true high priest. And here's the high priest being struck by one of his subjects, although he wasn't subject, obviously. Um, But just amazing, the humility and the um, self-control, the meekness of the Lord Jesus. Um, At any moment, he could call legions of angels and take care of business or say a word and they would all fall down. Um, but he didn't. He held back. It's interesting later in Acts 23 when, when Paul was under cir- similar circumstances as he was brought before a, the court. Um, Paul, not knowing who the pri- high priest was that year, I guess, um, you know, they started accusing him and someone smacked Paul in the face and Paul said, you know, hey, may God strike you dead to them. So Paul lost his cool there said, hey, my, well, may you, stri- you know, God strike you dead. And he didn't realize that he was actually talking to the high priest and he had to repent and apologize there. But Jesus didn't have any of that. He was calm and he didn't revile when reviled. And yet Jesus says in verse 23, as he stands up for truth, Jesus answers him in verse 23, if what I said is wrong, bear witness. Tell me what I said is wrong about, about what I said. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You know, uh, you, you don't just strike someone, you tell them if they're wrong, right? And that's the idea there, that, that, that actually they're conducting the trial um, unlawfully, which was true. And again, these, these men were not concerned with justice. They were not concerned with justice whatsoever. They were concerned with uh, getting what their evil hearts wanted, and that was their power back, and Jesus eradicated. So verse 24, Anna set him, uh, then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so the former high priest sends him to the current high priest um, 
for the second phase of the religious trial. And while all this is, is taking place and while that transition's about to happen, verse 25 kind of takes us outside into the courtyard. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And so Jesus is being questioned on the inside and he's answering, answering truthfully and honestly. And you see the contrast here. Peter's being uh, being uh, questioned on the outside here, and yet he's answering deceitfully. And there's that, that contrast there. And he denied it and said to him, I am not, verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And so this is getting a little personal, because remember Peter pulled out his sword and cut off the high priest's ear, and, and it's a little dark, there's torches and stuff. He's all, what? Weren't you the guy out there with the sword chopping someone's ear off? And Peter again denied it. And we know from the other gospels that Jesus starts, uh, Jesus, Peter starts cussing at this point and cursing and saying, nope, I never knew him. That's, 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 that's lunacy. And at, that, at once a rooster crowed. And at this moment, Luke 26, Luke's account, Luke 26, 61 tells us that Jesus turned and peered across the, the, the courtyard and locked eyes with Peter. And Peter saw it, and Peter remembered at that moment that Jesus had told him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. In verse 62 of Luke, Luke, uh, Luke 26 says, and tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The question went from, are you one of his disciples, to... Are you that guy in the garden? And Jesus and Peter denied everything. Peter denied everything. You know, this, this was actually, even though it is, it is incredibly tragic, this is actually a turning point in Peter's life. For all that the Lord um, had ahead for Peter, Peter had to know what was truly going on in his own heart, where his allegiance truly stood. And Peter thought he had a great love for the Lord and he was exuberantly following him and all these types of things. And a lot of that is true, but it didn't match up to the type of love that he thought he had for the Lord. And we're going to see that play out later at the end of John. But Jesus knew what Peter didn't about himself. And when Peter actually found out what was in him, that he wouldn't follow Jesus to his death, that he wouldn't love him the way he thought, it crushed him. And he was broken at that point. But the Lord doesn't leave Peter there. He knew it would happen, and he will shortly meet him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and have a conversation with him and restore him and commission him and send him. And ultimately, Peter would be one to bring thousands to the Lord Jesus and eventually uh, have a death fitting um, that the Lord Jesus would prophesied about that he would die um, in the same manner that he was. He would be crucified, and that's what happened to Peter. But meanwhile, Jesus is humbly um, taking the scorn of men, obviously, but walking into 
the wrath of God willfully to redeem Peter, to redeem all the Peters out there so that we can, by the grace of God, be changed into the image of Christ, that the love that we don't possess, we possess through Jesus Christ, that the desire to follow God that we could not do in our flesh would be accomplished in the power of his Holy Spirit. And so God is not done with Peter, and he's not done with you, and Jesus is willfully drinking the cup here in Matthew, uh, in uh, John chapter 18, um, so that you, so that I, so that the rest of believers uh, would not only be um, redeemed, we'd be paid for, our sin would be purchased, but that we'd be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives as we receive his new life and that we would walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit according to his word and we would shine and impact um, as we love one another and obey God and shine to this dark world the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Peter isn't there yet, but he's going to be shortly and God is in process with him in these chapters, but he is also in process with us today. Praise God. Amen. And we're going to go ahead and, and leave it there. Um, but we'll, we'll come back next week and pick up with the rest of the trial of Jesus and on to the crucifixion. So let's bow our heads in prayer as we close. Father, we want to thank you so much again for your word. It's always good to be in your word together. And Lord, I pray wherever the sound of this uh, message goes that people would hear your your scriptures, Lord, they would learn of your son and they would come to know him and love him and obey him, Lord, as we have. We, we pray, Lord, that um, as we have hearts that, are, that fail us, God, that are, are all over the place, uh, we ask this week that you, our good shepherd, would take us and corral us in your truth, corral us in your love. Teach us, Lord, your heart concerning the age that we live in and what we're to be about and what your will is for us as a, as a church, Lord, as your bride during this season, that you would be glorified, that the works that we would accomplish during this time would be, be done such a way that people would look and know that you are working and that we would be able to then testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they would come to know you. And Lord, for us, we just pray um, once again that you would gather us together soon, Lord, in person, that you would lift this um, situation, uh, that we would have mercy, Lord, and that we would have um, communion together once again. And until that day, Lord, we, we just want to honor you with our whole hearts. So be glorified, Lord Jesus. And we just want to, we just, we just praise you. And we give you thanks for all your goodness and what you're doing. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.